Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 This podcast is brought to you by Sage Motion. Sage Motion enables movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Sign up for a demo at sagemotion.com slash demo and write boom in the comment box. Welcome to Boom. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And Melissa's really happy that I didn't do a crazy intro. This time I prepared mentally, but I told Hannah I was mentally preparing and I think I just... Well, see, I have to do it when you least expect it. Otherwise... Otherwise, it's not fun. Okay, well, next time I won't think so much about it, so Hannah can really throw me off. But this month, we have three different people. (laughs) That's right. We've gone crazy. We've lost it. But these awesome people are developing approaches to apply biomechanics in practice. So things like performance training or even just standard weight training, but in a safer way. And it's just been really cool to learn about how biomechanics is translated in these domains and the impact that our research is having and how people are learning from those and, you know, relaying them to people. So one is with athletic movement, which is comprised of two doctors of chiropractic medicine who develop movement screens and can be used with everyday patients and clients, elite athletes, and teams. The other is with Bill DeSimone, who is a personal trainer and former athlete himself, who focuses on teaching and sharing biomechanics-informed training to help prevent injury and improve performance. And he's all about increasing the length of time at which you can still perform at your peak rather Mm -hmm. than just focusing on one performance. He's focusing on a lifetime of performance. Exactly. So we're dividing these up into two separate shorter episodes. So this first part, part one, is with Dr. Weinberg and Dr. Welsh from Athletic Movement Assessment, and then we'll release part two in a couple of weeks. Before we get started, if you enjoy Boom and you find value in it and you want us to be able to keep booming um, (laughs) with you all, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us and share Boom with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Yeah, we're so grateful to get that feedback from listeners, and we're so grateful that you listen at all. Um, (laughs) And we want to give a special shout out to Jasmine Cruz, who left the following comment, which warmed our hearts. She said, I wasn't able to attend this workshop in real time. But I'm thankful for the recording. I'm in the process of drafting my research statement for whatever is next after grad school. So this workshop came at the perfect time. Thank you. And she's referring to the workshop that we put on with the International Women in Biomechanics group. Yes. On impact and writing an impact statement. And so you can check that out in our bio. Yeah, on our YouTube page. Yeah, we love notes like this. It makes our day. And so we love hosting workshops, too, for researchers. So to all the listeners, too, feel free to reach out if you'd like us to facilitate a workshop for you or your team and let us know if there's any workshops that would be helpful for you because we're also always looking to expand and find other ways to teach skills that are not always taught in the normal curriculum. So we're excited to do that and would love your input on what would be helpful. We also have two absolutely spectacular (laughs) fails that we're going to share at the end of the episode, so better make sure to stick around for those. But before that, let's talk a little bit about 
some biomechanics and a bit of boom. A bit of boom. So since this episode is on biomechanics and practice and training, I wanted to share a cool example of this in adolescence in a very practical setting, which is gym Mm. class. So in this article, the article is titled Effect of Strength Training on Jump Landing Biomechanics in Adolescent Females. It was published in November of 2021 in Sports Medicine. Daniel Herman and colleagues developed a lower body strength training program for female middle school students, which was implemented in their gym class by Mm. the physical education instructor. So I don't remember, I don't know what you, what your gym classes were like, but mine was more just, you know, trying different sports. And I don't think we really were ever did sort of like functional yeah. weight training or anything game. like the parachute game. <laughs> You're doing that in middle school. <laughs> we were. Everyone loved it. It's a fan favorite. Yeah, it never gets old. But they actually implemented this multi-step progressive program starting with single joint strength exercises, hmm. then multi-joint exercises, and then exercises with resistant band. The students performed twice per week. They also had a control group, which similarly participated in a physical education class twice a week, but without the strength training component and more of a focus on general physical activity and exposure to different sports. Mm. So it was six months long. And at the end of that, they found that strength increased as well as landing error score system scores Hmm. improving. And this is a measure of jump landing biomechanics. So they found that this school-based strength training program that focused on hip and knee musculature improved jump landing biomechanics relevant to ACL injury risk. And that's a time where people are generally susceptible, right, to that type of risk. Yeah, exactly. So to me, it was exciting to start targeting this younger age Mm -hmm. group because, as you said, they are at higher risk for injury as adolescents, but also because I think it could potentially have a positive impact in the future with a stronger foundation Mm. and knowledge of the importance of strength and biomechanics. Although, of course, that depends on the experience they have with participating in the program. And Mm. to me, I'm thinking about it's great to have this foundational knowledge and this additional strength. But perhaps in the future, we can also evaluate if the students enjoyed it and if there Mm -hmm. are ways to make trainings fun and engaging as well as beneficial because, you know, we want to make sure it's sort of this lifelong training and experience and not something that students are sort of forced to do and that you know and those are just the things that I'm thinking like what I've wanted to do instead of playing volleyball in gym (laughs) class what I've wanted to do resistance band strength training I don't know so you know how can we help students enjoy it just as much as Mm. as the benefit that they're getting from it right and it's cool that they did this in as a part of school though because I've never thought about you know I feel like we think about how do we translate our findings from biomechanics and Mm -hmm. it's I've never thought about oh like let's bring this to a school it's always like how do we bring this into the real world quote unquote but not like necessarily maybe through this sort of educational system that's already in place and has resources and abilities exactly yeah and not just after school some sports team actually in school which can definitely yeah because it's beneficial to those who aren't maybe in sports right now but maybe somebody does eventually join sports team or you know are just physically active generally and so yeah you're right it's very cool to like see that as part of the curriculum in school. Cool. Thanks for sharing that awesome bit of moon. Thank you. Are we going to boogie on over to the episode now? <laughs> Let's boogie on over. I mean to the interview. To the interview. <laughs> Today we are talking with Dr. Brian Weinberg and Dr. Patrick Welsh, co-directors of Athletic Movement Assessment. Thank you so much for being here with us today. 
Thanks. We are really excited to chat with you too. And yeah, look forward to uh, seeing what you guys have for us. Well, we usually like to start sort of with your beginnings and like to show a diversity of career paths and journeys. And it seems like nobody takes like a straight path. Yeah, you're nodding your heads. We'd love to hear about your journey and when you first knew you wanted to be involved in sports and sports medicine and chiropractor. You're both chiropractors. Yeah, it seems like you have so many different certificates (laughs) trainings. But yeah, so just tell us a little bit more about each of your stories. We'd love to hear. Yeah, I'll start. So, I mean, growing up, I was a tennis player, competitive tennis player here in Toronto, Canada, and worked my way up through the national level and ended up getting a tennis scholarship in the U.S. So I ended up playing for University of Hawaii, where I graduated. Throughout all my injuries, I always had a chiropractor that kind of helped me along my way. And after I was done at Hawaii, I played on the lower professional circuit level for a year, still knowing that I'd want to get into chiropractic. And then after that, got into the whole uh, chiropractic college here in Canada at CMCC in Toronto. So that was a four-year course there. And then coming out of school, started working in Mississauga. So it's in the greater Toronto area. And that's pretty much where we started Athletic Movement Assessment, a, a seminar series. And since then, besides the seminar stuff, like you mentioned, got involved in a lot of sports from an injury management side of things and also treatment. So I work with our professional football team in the Canadian Football League, the Toronto Argonauts, and as well our professional rugby team, the Toronto Arrows. So did that. And this past Olympics, the 2020 Olympics, which was held in 2021, even though they still call it the Olympics. I was the Cairo for the uh, badminton Canada team as well. So, you know, it's a good change working with athletes. I still obviously enjoy working with the general public as well. Everybody's an athlete in their own right. Everybody has to sit and stand. I just love helping people out. Oh, thanks. Cool to go from one side to the other. Like for an athlete being helped by chiropractors and then you got to kind of pay it forward too. Definitely makes you appreciate the other side that you don't see. It was definitely eye-opening. Go for it, Patrick. <laughs> My path uh, might look sort of planned out and linear, but it it sort of was just a natural progression. I did an exercise science degree at the University of Calgary and was working as a trainer for a number of years with general population, with some professional hockey players, and got connected with a chiropractic neurologist, which he was doing a lot of really forward-thinking things. He thought outside the box and really piqued my interest in how you can help people. And I decided at some point I didn't want to be the one referring to him. I wanted to be the one fixing and helping the patients. And sort of that led me into the the chiropractic profession. And, And throughout that time, I worked in a number of sports in hockey and soccer and ended up doing a postdoctoral degree in sports sciences, which got me sort of interested more in research. I did some biomechanics research and I spend sort of part of my time working with various multi-sport games and the Canada Winter Games I was recently at and I travel with Floorball Canada. So many of you won't know what floorball is, but it's a big European sport. It's kind of like ball hockey. I travel with the national team when I get some spare time as well. So a mixed bag with Brian and I, we see athletes, we see general population people and sort of everyone in between. Mm. 
How do you feel like working with the athletes versus the general population is similar or different? I mean, they both have their physical demands. Those demands just differ in frequency and loading. And the big thing I notice is that your athletes, especially professional athletes, they get a lot more recovery time. They have dedicated training hours and they have a lot of recovery time available. When you look at the everyday person who sits all day, all they do is sit. And while that may not seem like a physical endeavor, it's certainly putting some stress on the body. And they're sitting at home and sitting at work and just doing that over and over again. There's not a good recovery from that position. So we talk about sort of the load to recovery ratio and bringing that analogy in for our general population patients helps them understand why recovery is important. So there's some similarities, some differences for sure. Yeah, that's so interesting. We'd love to learn more about what you do at Athletic Movement Assessment. I think we're really excited to have you on because I think often we're focused on this research side of biomechanics and we haven't talked to too many people who are actually practicing with athletes and people and actually putting the research in biomechanics into practice. What does this look like in everyday life and how are we translating that and actually using that to help people? So we're really excited to learn more about that. But yeah, first, if you could just give a general overview of AMA. Yeah. So what it is, it's a criterion-based assessment. And what we do is we try to make it very relevant and contextual to the person in front of you. So you know, we wouldn't assess a baseball player the same way we would assess a hockey player because the demands are quite different. And so we try to modify it based off of the person in front of you. And it's something that we teach. So it's a three-part seminar series. So we have an upper extremity, a lower extremity, and then we have a therapeutics one for practitioners. And we find a majority of the people coming to take the seminar and who's it's for are healthcare practitioners, chiros, physios, ATs, and as well as a lot of, you know, strength and conditioning coaches. Mm. We find just trying to combine them all together. And that way we all have, you know, similar language that we use very, very important. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, our model is really looking at movement through a different lens. We're sort of looking at the confluence of several domains of science. So biomechanics, pathophysiology, neurology, pain science, and motor learning. And we're trying to, when we look at it through our biomechanical lens, we're really seeing what our athlete or what our patient can do with their body. And the criterion that Brian referenced has to be contextualized to that person. So we can't expect a 12-year-old to move the same way as a 55-year-old. And we know that sport adaptations are also going to change how people move. So our model is always sort of tweaking the assessment process to match the demands of that athlete or that sport, or even for that general population person who has normal tasks of daily life. Wow. I feel like that personalized approach is becoming more and more popular, like you see in almost every field, like we're figuring out how to sort of better personalize medicine and treatment and therapy, you name it training is this new in your field you know like bringing together all these different people and like Brian you mentioned speaking the same language how do you do that how do you kind of get everyone on the same page but also benefit from the diversity of perspectives that you're bringing in yeah so I mean we set out again a criteria and we go over some of the definitions of words 
because sometimes depending on which school of thought you have, they're going to differ a little bit. And so we try to make sure that we're all speaking that common language. And as we go through the assessments and we go through teaching, you know, the AMA thought process, and again, it is a thought process. Like we don't go through a cookie cutter approach. We try to link things together from, again, a therapeutics, but also performance viewpoint. Yeah. And I would just say that, you know, when we're trying to get people to speak the same language, we go back to first principles of movement science, biomechanics, like people should understand torque, people should understand any principles of science at the basic level. And so we kind of bring everyone back down to that common language. Mm -hmm. And our whole model is based off of those sort of multiple domains I spoke about motor learning, biomechanics, and so on. So I feel like if we get people in that realm with enough of the similar definitions, similar tools, then we have a good starting point to end up at the same place in the end. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to make sure that everyone is on the same page in terms of those that foundational Mm -hmm. knowledge, and then you can build upon that. And I guess then better help like personalize it or kind of, yeah, expand Mm -hmm. upon that. I'm curious, so you have this foundational knowledge, but then I'm sure you also bring in new information and new knowledge and there's always new research coming out. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious more on that side, how you get the information that you're sharing with people and how you're bringing in or potentially applying new research, like how you make sure that's relevant or like accurate and you should be using it, like how you sort of pick through different information that you might be coming across. I think this could be really helpful as biomechanists and researchers to understand then how, like when we write a paper or something like that, how it's actually being used or taken and then applied. So if you could talk more about what that looks like from your side, that would be really interesting. For sure. And you bring up a really good point about that because understanding how to critically appraise research and break it down is a skill that takes years and years of training mm-hmm. to understand what good research, especially in today's world where people just want snippets of information, it's highly complicated and it takes some in- intentional effort. My postdoctoral program was two years of looking at papers and deciding is this good or not and why. And there's it's not a this is good or this is bad. It's a continuum. And so how much are you willing to give and how much are you willing to take? What I think you're asking is how do we take that stuff on the paper and put it into practice. And we first have to always apply our principles. We look through the research with our AMA lens, which our principles we teach in our course, one of them being relevancy. So what does this have to do with this particular athlete profile? So we might look at some biomechanical research on, you know, knee alignment from a vertical drop jump and looking at dynamic knee valgus. How does that even translate into risk of injury on the soccer pitch? Well, we know that and we look at all of those fields of science I talked about together, pain science, motor learning, biomechanics. Mm -hmm. We're taking little snippets from these areas of research and seeing where they apply and to what degree. And in some cases, a paper will really give us a lot of useful, applicable stuff. And other times it'll give us just a little piece. It'll give us you know, a little clinical pearl, they'll give us a one extra piece of information we can use to inform our decision making. So 
based on the quality of the paper, based on the degree to which it can actually influence change, you know, we're going to filter that through our principles and, and take what we can from it. And that's why we're always, our model is always changing. It's always different. We let people audit and come back as many times as they want because mm-hmm. every year our manual is different. The research we pull in is new. You have to have a flexible mindset because all this stuff is going to continue to evolve. We're never going to reach the end point. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that mindset is so key in so many aspects, but especially this one and especially in science, right? Like once someone once said like, oh, I want to be proven wrong. Like I hope that my like research paper is someday proven wrong, right? Because that is the expectation that we're going to grow and evolve beyond. Like hopefully we don't just stay static in some of these truths. And so I really appreciate that mindset. And I'm wondering how you might communicate that to the participants that you work with, like to athletes and things like that, how, you know, you're teaching these experts how to take on this framework, but how do you translate that to the people that you're actually helping too? Yeah. From, so like our patients or, you know, for training someone, I always personally start with trying to guesstimate someone's health literacy. Like what kind of language should I use to meet them where they are? Chiropractors, we also have lots of people come in with some really old school ideas about what we do in general. <laughs> the world's current obsession with static postural alignments, uh, you know, on social media, and, and we could speak to the validity or lack thereof of that. But you want to sort of A, meet them where they're at, and then B, just start with simple principles that are going to help them. If you take a patient with back pain who's load intolerant, they can't lift something, you might teach them about torque and how there's more torque the further away something gets from your body. So keep, you know, when you're doing the dishes, get really close to the sink so that you don't have to reach as far and put as much torque through your back. So really simple approaches like that from a pain perspective, but obviously we get more complicated in the sport realm and how we use that information. Yeah. And it's, you get the buy-in from the patient and the athlete when not only can they see the changes, but also feel the changes. And I think just having an open communication with them, you know, you're always communicating, whether you're treating them, assessing them, or going through, you know, rehab or training, you want to hear, okay, what are you feeling? And then, you know, from a visual standpoint, you know, what does that actually look like? And does it matter? There's no pass fail, there's no dysfunction. Like we don't like to use the word something's dysfunctional because, things change. And if somebody has, you know, going back to what Patrick was talking about, knee valgosity, well, you got to put into context who that person is, what sport they do. And, you know, if they're a break dancer and there needs to go into that dynamic valgosity, okay, maybe you'll allow for that. Whereas in other contexts and other situations, you might not. So, you know, it's putting it all together. And again, like I said at the beginning, you got to think, and we try to simplify it as best we can, but you know, there is still that, that need for the person taking the seminar to think and understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I feel like with people, you're probably always seeing, I mean, no one is alike, right? So you're probably also just being presented with new cases all the time or things that might be surprising to you. I'm curious if there's any ever been, I know you probably can't like give details of this, but I'm wondering if you ever have had a client that, you know, was maybe you had to like apply different principles that you like haven't before, or, like had to, it brought together all of these. You talked about some like neuromechanics and pain science. And I'm wondering if there's like an example of bringing that in and how that supports biomechanics. Cause I think sometimes that can 
maybe feel a little bit ambiguous, like, Mm -hmm. or hard to, I think it's not as easy to explain as biomechanics, which you're like applying mechanical principles to the body, but like, are -hmm. there cases where you can think on where you've brought in these other principles of pain science and it's really like helped supported their treatment? Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely critical. We, when we're teaching, we tell people like you have 10 people with patellar tendonitis, they could all have different causative factors and they could all have different pain generation factors. So Mm. purely biomechanically, if you land stiff, Mm. don't have a lot of dorsiflexion and hip flexion, well, the patellar tendon is just going to take more load. But if that person is a highly tuned athlete and well-rested, they might tolerate that insult, that training session. But if you take someone who's a diabetic and a smoker and you get them starting their boot camp and they jump with that stiff landing style, they're going to get a patellar tendonitis much quicker. So now we're trying to navigate the situation where we have to understand tissue pathophysiology. We have to understand biomechanics. We have to understand motor learning, neurology, all of these things at once because five people with the same diagnosis of back pain or patellar tendonitis are going to have different avenues that they need to go down in order to recover. So when you said, you know, we're always dealing with different cases. Yeah. I mean, every patient is an N equals one study and have to be flexible in your thinking, not just think within a particular filter and be able to look through all of these lenses at once to give yourself options. And you just feel so much more comfortable knowing like, yeah, like I can treat this, this is my wheelhouse, or no, that type of pain is due to an inflammatory arthritis, and you need medication. Like you need to understand what's within your scope of practice and how to best identify what people need. Mm. Melissa, I keep thinking about all the ways that we could use the Sage Motion system for movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Me too. It made me think about our in-lab interventions to improve gait symmetry for stroke patients and how awesome it would be if they could access that from their own homes. Definitely. It is so portable, easy to use, and could be personalized for different people. It was so nice to hear from the team, too, directly in our personal demo. Yeah, and our listeners can sign up for their own demo at sagemotion.com demo and write boom in the comment box and then let us know your ideas for using it. I'm curious, there's tools to quantify these different aspects of a per- So some of the things that you're mentioning are more like lifestyle or demographic. What are other ways that you can actually measure some of these parameters that you're talking about that you would consider in their treatment? And then I guess maybe this is a different question, but I'm curious about outcomes and what you would consider a successful outcome then. I'm sure that also varies by the person. So I'm kind of also curious about how you determine those and sort of quantify that as well. Yeah. Okay. So from the measurement standpoint, I mean, we can measure all sorts of things with angles and strength. For most of my upper extremity patients, I'm testing grip strength because we know it has a lot of correlation with upper extremities and even total body strength. But there are other things that we might want to measure that predict their potential success in the treatment plan, like their heart rate, their blood pressure, their oxygen saturation. These are signs that the system is working hard or not. If you get an increase in 10 beats per minute 
of your resting heart rate first thing in the morning, it's a sign of overtraining. And there's other ways we can monitor load in our athletes, whether that's with GPS tracking systems and things like that. So those are some of the ways that we might measure other useful outcomes because we don't always want to leave it, especially in the clinical setting, to just pain. And, you know, pain Mm -hmm. is a very subjective rating. And when you're talking about outcomes, a lot of people, 90% of people who come into our practice are coming in with a pain problem. And so when they feel maybe not even in all of their pain is gone, some people just want their eight out of 10 to be a four and then they're done with you. And that's, mm. that's a successful outcome for them. And so there's different ways. There's both functional and you know pain and disability type of questionnaires in our field where it's like, are we just talking about pain or are we asking them questions about what they can and can't do? And that objectivity, those objective measures are really important because pain is a great liar and pain <laughs> is separate from biomechanical issues. And so we want to make sure we're measuring both in order to ensure people are feeling good about the path they're on and not just worrying about pain and thinking about function as well. Yeah. And from like an assessment standpoint, and I don't know if you were alluding to it, but like, do we measure things? And we do a bit, but it's not, you know, an all or nothing because what you have to understand is if you're looking at, for instance, range of motion, it's going to be different, you know, hour to hour for somebody. Like if they just woke up versus they warmed up, they're ready to go. So you can't put your hat on that one okay, range of motion test because you can manipulate it. And our paradigm that we use with AMA, we try to manipulate the nervous system in order to create that change. Again, whether it's a feeling of stiffness, a feeling of pain or improving that excursion. So if we're solely basing our assessment on just measuring joint angles, again, it's the great liar as well, because it's not going to be the same throughout time. I love this approach because I feel like oftentimes, I mean, I felt it in my own research, I felt it in other clinical areas, but like you just want something that's going to be a catch-all, right? You just want to track one thing and, you know, that works for everyone. And but I think that this approach is much more realistic and much more, right, like impactful and effective. And to have that mindset to be so comprehensive, not only in the tools you're using, the measures you're using, but also in like the empathy you're using and with your patients, right, and trying to understand sort of the context and what actually, you know, a good outcome means for them, not just, you know, biomechanically. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why we started AMA was in chiropractic college, a lot of it is when you're assessing somebody using orthopedic tests. But the problem is a lot of the times when somebody comes in, a patient athlete or what have you, they don't have an orthopedic problem. So if all your orthopedic tests fail, all of them are negative. It's like, okay, well, what do you do with that person in front of you? And if you're a trainer and you have somebody come in to see you and say you're assessing them and you're grading them. Okay. It's a one out of 10 or three out of 10. It's like, okay, well, what does that even mean? And then what do you do with it? And so created this because we've taken other assessments and screening courses out there. And at the end of the day, you're left with the question of, so what, what do you do with it? It doesn't really help guide what you're going to do with the athletes and patient in front of you. And what we try to do in our seminar series is when people leave, they should know exactly what to do with their patient and their athlete when they leave. And the assessment helps guide that. Okay. Like, do they need treatment? Do they need, do they go in the training stream 
or, okay, you need to, we're referring out, you need to get out and you need to see somebody else. And so that's the gist of why we created this paradigm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's been really interesting to learn about it in this perspective. And is there anything else that you want to share about AMA or any surprises you've (laughs) run into or challenges like well, I think a lot, you know, for people that know the space in terms of different types of assessment, we work with a lot of students too, who ask us about these other types of things. And I think what's important and the message we always try to get across is that you need to consider the individual in front of you and have a flexible thought process when you're assessing and try to leave as much bias behind you because you go into an assessment and you have a finite set of tools, your expectations about what you're going to see are going to be limited. And when something falls outside of that expectation, you can be stuck. So rather than trying to ascribe to a particular model, you should have a flexible lens with which you can adapt to any situation. And so I think whenever we're, you know, people ask us, what other information do I need to know? You need to go back to the first principles of a lot of this information, the things that a lot of people like to ignore in school. They like to just get through the biomechanics lecture or their pathology lecture, but there's that stuff will be useful at some point in your educational career. And so going back to the first principles of motor learning and biomechanics and pain science, neurology and anatomy, all of those things together are slowly going to mold your thought process over time and make you adaptable to any situation, any patient presentation that comes in front of you. And in the end, you just also have to accept that you don't have every answer. You're not going to be able to fix Mm -hmm. it. When you get comfortable with that, then then things get a lot better. Well said. I'm not going to add anything to that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe sort of on that note of you, sometimes you just don't have the answer. We often like to ask people about like a time when they feel like they failed or at least haven't met their goal. And so is there a story there that you might share, whether it's from your practice, teaching, life? We'd love to hear it. Yeah. And again, I think it goes back to, you know, just getting through college and becoming a new grad. And again, going back to Patrick's story about like a tendinopathy or tendinitis of the knee, a knee's not a knee is not a knee. So they might have the same diagnosis. And especially at the beginning of my career, you're treating and giving the exact same exercises because somebody has low back pain. It's like you're given these three exercises. Everybody's getting the same thing. And sometimes, yes, they get better and sometimes they don't. So you need an alternative view and an alternative explanation of what you're going to do with that person. Because like I like to quote one of our professors at college, Dr. Ross, you know, different people are different. (laughs) Words to live by. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't realize that, you're going to make a lot of mistakes and mistakes were made and mistakes are still made. Like you're still going to make it. You're going to always try to improve. And there's no system that covers everything. You got to take a little bit from everybody and put it all together as best you can. Yeah, for me, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made was assuming people are always going to listen to my recommendations. (laughs) (laughs) So, You know, you go in with certain expectations about, you know, how this plan of management is going to go for someone. And I was a trainer for a long time too. And I, for every person I had achieved their fitness goals, I had people who didn't as well. And it's being able to leave aside your preconceived ideas and try to 
really meet people where they are. So it's not even a specific scenario. I can say I've made that mistake to various degrees with different clients and patients over the years. In the end, it's like it's not going to be a perfect road to the outcome. But as long as you and your client or patient agree that you've come to a satisfactory result, then that's the ultimate goal. And and like what I said earlier, it's like just being comfortable with a bit of uncertainty goes a long way, which I I definitely wasn't early on in my career. I thought everyone's just going to drop and give me 20 push-ups. And (laughs) Okay, Doc. (laughs) That's so funny. Have you found any ways that are helpful in getting people to follow the protocol? (laughs) I think about going to my physical therapist and the one right now, I think my mindset is very different from what it has been in the past when it comes to physical therapy and knowing that it's a really long process. And I mean, I probably do like 75% to 80% maybe of the things that she tells me to do. And she's like, every time it's like, wow, like this is, it's like amazing that you're actually listening to me. I'm like, I'm not even doing all the things that you're saying, but I'm trying to do it the best I can. And I can imagine that's, yeah, not always the case. And I think sometimes we want a quick fix and especially like with long-term when you don't see changes right away or improvements right away, it can be a little discouraging. What has worked for you in terms of helping people, yeah, really be in it for the long haul and stick to some of their plans? Well, there's a few things you've touched on there that I think are important. Certainly the quick fix mentality is is a big problem, especially in today's the inventor of the universal scroll needs to be condemned for life because that's just not a healthy way to learn. Brian and I will treat Instagram injuries now because people have tried these things to fix your back pain that weren't appropriate. Oh, no. But looking at your scenario where you say you're doing 75% of it, you could ask yourself, why are you only doing 75%? And you don't need to answer that. I'm not inter- interviewing you here. But <laughs> yeah. When you think about that, is there a reason that person isn't bought in all the way? And even going back to our model of helping people feel the change, like when we're here, we want people to feel the change that will satisfy that quick fix idea, but educating them appropriately to say, this is the process and this is why. You know, nobody will argue with me that a broken bone takes six weeks to heal. So I tell them a bone takes six weeks to heal cartilaginous or ligamentous tissue takes longer. It takes 40, 50 weeks sometimes. So helping people and encouraging people that based on the timeline, they are where they should be, that's maybe going to help solve some of those problems. But when you ask some people, some people are going to come in and see you all the time just so they can continue to abuse their body. I used to train a guy, (laughs) I only work out with you in order to make sure I can eat cheesecake on the weekend. I said, (laughs) that's okay. Like we're on the same page. That's your goal. (laughs) Honesty. That's right. No, I think that's a big part. Like getting that compliance is, you know, can they see it? Can they feel it? And they need to understand it's the communication. Because if they don't see the benefit of doing an exercise, then why would you continue doing it? And if you can alleviate somebody's pain or improve somebody's range of motion and you can show them immediately from that exercise, and that doesn't always happen, but if it does, it definitely goes a long way. And if it doesn't happen, again, just the communication with the person is to, okay, here's why you're doing this exercise and, you know, maybe putting some research behind it saying, okay, the research shows this, here's how long it's going to take and having realistic outcomes and goals is a huge part as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that you are both touching on not just thinking about an individual's lifestyle or these different measures that you're taking of their health, but then also what their goals are and what's important to them. And we've talked a little bit about Instagram now. You brought up the term Instagram injury. And and I've seen so many different accounts now that are teaching biomechanics or sports medicine. And some of them really are great quality videos and really grab your attention. And it's like easy to learn from, but maybe not necessarily accurate information. Um, I was wondering if you could, this, I was thinking about this in the context of asking, asking you how people can learn more about you and thinking about your Instagram and how it's really quite educational and, but also interesting enough to like grab your attention. So I guess I was wondering if you could one, share that and how people can learn about you, but then also maybe some of the things that they could expect to like learn from your account and how it might differ from other accounts that might be trying to teach biomechanics, but maybe not. I'd be, I guess, at risk of injuring people. Yeah. I mean, to me, my gut is always that the higher the production value, the better the video looks, the more I wonder about the quality of of content. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our purpose with Instagram should be to, you know, win the algorithm, but we focus more on what's the quality of the stuff we're putting out rather than worrying about necessarily, oh, is it every day? And we're really trying to help people translate going back to one of your earlier questions research into practice so a lot of our posts are going to be here's a scenario or here's a patient presentation what does the research do to dictate something actionable actionable use of research is really what we want because very often people either ignore the research or they are research restricted and they go well this meta-analysis says you can't do anything like well, that's not going to help the patient when they're sitting in front of you. So for us, we're really looking about the actionable use of research, whether or not our page looks sexy, that's for you, anybody else to decide. But <laughs> we're about quality over quantity in that regard. Well, I think your page does look sexy. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's a nice, consistent branding, right? Like you've yeah. got your sort of three columns of content. Yeah. Go ahead, Okay. You won't find us on TikTok, but uh, I learned enough about Instagram. Okay. That yeah. Yeah. Palms were Your aesthetics about. are good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's right for the audience, right? Like we've had similar yeah. conversations and we're like, do we really need to put a dance to this information? Like probably not. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's more focused on the actual content itself more than the presentation of it, I guess sometimes, but Edu- and it's okay to have some, uh, edutainment as somebody once told us so like because you need to grab people's attention today but we're into the long-term quality relationships with people where in our field if you're honestly not putting in long hours of study to get where you need to be you're not going to be able to confidently answer anybody's question the patient comes in and says well why is this happening to me you're either going to make something up and sound confident or you can actually be confident because you've put in the time doing the boring study that doesn't make the reels. Mm. Brian, were you going to say something? I can't remember anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, would you mind just sharing your Instagram and any other places that people should or can follow you? And yeah, Instagram athletic movement assessment 
And then we usually feed things onto our Twitter from there. We post more on Instagram, but it, it feeds onto, I think it's at assess movement is our handle for Twitter. And then on Facebook, athletic movement assessment as well. We always talk about, we got to get better with our social media. Like our stuff is more word of mouth as opposed to our Instagram and stuff. But we do, like Patrick said, we try to post good content which is probably why we don't post all the time because we're always looking and and we're trying to do it in a in most times and not when we're in a way to make people laugh and uh, a little bit more entertainment. Yeah, so that's kind of where you can find us and our website is athleticmovementassessment.com is where you can find out more about the seminars and they have some links to some other blog posts and various things like that, so... That's great. And yeah, I'm sure people will follow. We've been following so that it's been really fun. And I feel like I've learned a lot already. We're coming up on our last question here. What are you most excited about for the future of, let's say, athletic movement assessment? You talked about, you know, sort of your past, your present, how you're using this now. What do you imagine it in the future? Yeah, I mean, we're looking to grow, expand into new markets. We've been across North America and into Asia, and we're going to incorporate some online modules as well, some e-learning type information, which I think people will like in two-hour snippets or something like that. And we really believe that this model should be a staple in standard athletic care for all major types of sports teams. The professional teams we've worked with in hockey and Canadian football and the NFL and other teams they really appreciate what we bring to the table and that buy-in that the athletes get. And when you're working with that kind of expensive athlete, you want them bought in. So our vision is to grow it across major sports, get some online educational material because people always want more. We just got to put the time in and, and get it out there. So hopefully by you know 2023, you'll see some of that information. And that's where we're headed. Perfect. Well, we're excited <laughs> for it. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for talking with us. This was such a cool conversation and Mm -hmm. quite different than the conversations we've had, but I feel like I've learned a lot and it's really made me think differently about how the research that we're doing can be translated, how we can educate Mm -hmm. not just other researchers, but athletes and patients and other clinicians and bringing in these different disciplines to really have a more holistic assessment mm-hmm. and understanding of people. So thank you for sharing all of that with us. Thank you for the great work that you do. And we're excited to keep following and staying in touch. Thanks for the opportunity. We appreciate you having us on. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It was awesome. Thank you so much to Brian and Patrick for taking that time to be on Boom and just have such an awesome conversation. It was so cool to hear both their experiences, how they integrate so many different disciplines in what they do and Mm -hmm. how they're really having an impact on people, helping them reach their own peak performances. Yeah, exactly. It was really cool to hear that and to consider how the work we're doing can really help people and kind of see the bridge Mm. to making that happen. So, yeah, thank you to them. And if you enjoyed the interview or the episode, make sure to share it with someone and let us know what you thought because it's always helpful to us to – we always find all the interviews (laughs) exciting. But what else, you know, would you like to learn about and what you found most exciting about the episode?
And before we wrap up, let's do some research fails. We promised you two spectacular fails at the yeah. beginning of this episode. And we were not joking. Melissa, <laughs> <laughs> you want to start us off? <laughs> yes. I actually It has getting, a happy ending, though. It does. I'm getting <laughs> flushed just thinking about this. So I had a presentation at the World Congress of Biomechanics, and I was really excited because it was in the Young Researcher Award session, and I was really honored to be presenting in that session. And it was on our work, the Statistian project that we did with smartphone video. People at home participated in the study and did the Statistian test. And I won't go into details of it, but I was got on Zoom to prepare because it was digital. What is it? What am I saying? It was virtual. Virtual. That's the <laughs> Sorry, that's the got, term. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just getting worked up. Just, um, yeah, so it was virtual. So we logged on to Zoom we can and take it. A beat. <laughs> And um, it wasn't – we weren't ready yet, so we were put into a waiting room. And before I entered the waiting Who's room – we? The people who were presenting in the – Okay. So there was maybe eight of us or something that were presenting and then also the moderators and mm-hmm. maybe the judges. I'm not really sure. Before entering, I turned off my camera and my microphone because I had to go run to do something. And then while I was away from my desk, I decided to start blasting music <laughs> to get myself hype and excited, Naturally. which is what I like to do, not just before Boom, but in my life, um, <laughs> whether that's a professional research talk <laughs> or a workout. I always use music to get myself excited and dance around and sing. So I start blasting Iggy Azalea, which as you might know, perhaps isn't the most appropriate music for in a professional setting <laughs> and singing and dancing around my apartment. And next thing I know, I hear Melissa, <laughs> Melissa <laughs> coming from my computer. And I was just like, please, please, please don't be unmuted. And I'm like, I walk over, my camera's on and I'm unmuted. And I'm like, oh, okay. So everyone heard that then? (laughs) They're like, yes. I was like, okay, great. Sorry. I was just hyping myself up. Meanwhile, like it's 100 degrees in my apartment because we don't have air conditioning and it's the summer. And I'm like in the top part of my outfit was like very professional. The bottom's like running shorts and my shirt isn't. Yeah, it just wasn't. It wasn't as professional as one might want. And everyone saw that as well. And just immediately following that, I had to give my talk. Also, this is at like one in the morning or something like that. So it was just like all sorts of crazy. (laughs) But there is a happy ending to this, right? Yeah. That she ended up receiving the Young Researcher Award. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So round of applause for Melissa. Thank you. Thank you. It was exciting. It was exciting and I don't know whether I was more excited about that or just the fact that immediately before I went through all of that, it could still pull it together. You know, those so are the get on those are the wins. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just exciting to share my work again. I feel like it had been a while since I've been mm. to a conference and I feel like those experiences and those times where you see people are excited about it and it's fun to have the conversations about your work and get questions about it. And I think it just kind of lights me up again and just kind of give me that extra boost I needed yeah. to really get going on on publishing it, working on publishing it and submitting the paper and all those things. So, And I think it, like your experience, remind us that we're humans. 
you know, we're just humans doing yeah. this science. Sometimes we need a little pump up and like, exactly. you know, it doesn't change the impactful work you're doing. And if anything, it fuels it. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I am, in fact, very human. And it's <laughs> fun to like, to yeah, to remember that we're multifaceted, you know? Exactly. And some of us need different ways to fuel ourselves. Yeah. And that is okay. And we can be ourselves. We can be all parts of ourselves, including a researcher and a dancer and a singer. And yeah. <laughs> if the most embarrassing thing to show is that you like to dance around and like to a great pop artist. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's the most embarrassing thing, but it was definitely the most embarrassing thing I've experienced. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. <laughs> but thank you for that perspective. And now I can't wait for you to share what happened to you oh. on vacation because it actually seems like a fake story. I think it is a fake story that no one is going to believe, but I'm going to share it anyway. It's kind of like a fishtail. Whoa. What? Which is also kind of uh, going into what it is. Oh, yeah. That was on purpose. That was on Melissa. purpose. Okay, sorry. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to let it in very well. So while Melissa was receiving this award, I didn't, I wasn't at the ceremony because yeah, I was on sharks. vacation. <laughs> and I was on this awesome scuba diving trip where you were like living on this boat and you're scuba diving four times a day, just always in the water with these amazing animals. And I have a GoPro that attaches to my like scuba diving mask, the, the eye mask, so it can see what you're seeing, basically. And I had it attached, and I had a great dive. Got you know dolphins, sharks, even a whale shark on that dive, so and cool. we're like coming up to the surface, so excited. We get in the boat to go back to like the larger boat, so we're in like a little sort of inflatable boat that's pretty close mm-hmm. to the water, and there are dolphins right next to us basically at eye level jumping next to our boat and we're just like also excited interacting with the dolphins i take off my mask to video them with my hand like hold the camera closer to the dolphins and the dolphins go underwater and i'm like oh maybe i can like you know video yeah, them underwater yeah. and as soon as i put my mask in the water and the boat is moving the waves just take my mask and, and GoPro. camera GoPro, yeah. mm-hmm. right behind so then the guide who was with us jumps out of the boat, like to go get the mask. Fully committed, fully to committed. He just camera. like swan dives off the back of the boat, and we're all just like, ah! And then the boat turns around to like go pick him up, and he's like, we like, I think I'm like, maybe he has the mask, maybe he got it, and he gets in the boat, and he's just like this look of disdain on his face, and he's just like, I'm so sorry, but a shark took your mask. Like, I swam up to it, and a shark also swam up to it (laughs) and grabbed the GoPro and then just dove straight down. And he said that oftentimes fishing boats will throw fish off the back of boats, and they're shiny and go into the water. And so he said the shark probably thought the mass dropping off the boat, the GoPro was shiny and metallic looking. And so the shark just thought it was a fish, grabbed it, and then dove down to eat it. And he's going to be thoroughly disappointed. He's going to be really sad. Yeah. I think he was. And so the good thing, the pro from this story is that the camera was still recording when it was lost. Yeah. So I'm hoping that like in 50 years, someone will find that. Someone will find it. Charge it it up. Exactly. Charge it up. Somehow figure out who I am. Yeah. Do some face recognition. Yeah. And then send it back to me. And then we'll have that awesome footage. But if not, like, I think it was a lesson, you know, just 
the ocean's gonna do what it's gonna do and uh just enjoy the moment you don't have to film everything yeah so now you still have that beautiful memory, have that memory. and an amazing story i was like when hannah told me i was like this it sounds like when people are like, oh, my dog ate my homework. But <laughs> Hannah's just like, oh, my shark ate my GoPro. My shark ate my GoPro. So yeah. All of the evidence of yeah. what entailed on that is trip is gone. Is gone. A shark <laughs> ate it. So sorry. So sorry, guys. <laughs> but Hannah did manage to capture some really cool footage. So if you want to see We'll probably that. share some of it on Yeah. Our yeah. Point. Yeah, Somehow. we need to share Keep your it eyes because peeled. it was amazing. And if anyone finds a GoPro in the Galapagos Islands mm-hmm. attached to a black eye mask, please. Yeah, out. now you know whose it is. So <laughs> give it back, okay? <laughs> Tell everyone. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Neuromuscular Biomechanics Lab for their support and to Peter Washington for the music. If you want to submit a research fail person to interview, if you want to get involved or just be our friend, just email us at biomechanicsonourminds at Mm gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. And be sure to check out our Boom channel on YouTube as well. Yeah. And to emphasize, you are already our friend, but... If you want to make it official, you can. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics off our minds. minds.